This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Dr. John Lennox is Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Oxford University and Emeritus Fellow in Mathematics and Philosophy of Science at Green Templeton College. He's an internationally renowned speaker on the interface of science, philosophy, and religion, well known for public debates with public intellectuals such as the late Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and Peter Singer. John, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Well, I love your accent. I can't wait to go and visit Ireland and Scotland and really get back to my Cameron roots. One of the things that was so important to me as a brand new believer was to be able to reconcile seemingly opposing ideas or disciplines like math and science, which I've always loved in school, and then this idea of faith and believing in things like a virgin giving birth and the resurrection of a man from the dead. And Listening and learning from people like you has been so helpful to me. Uh, so here you are at Oxford, and you're debating notable atheists. You're teaching on math and on science, and yet you are a man of faith, debating people like Christopher Hitchens, uh, who's wonderful to listen to, and, and Richard Dawkins, who's challenging to so many of us. Uh, have you always had a love for math and science, uh, or is that something that... that developed later in your life? No, it developed very early on. I w was quite good at arithmetic at school, and that then led to an interest in mathematics. It also led to an interest in languages. I love languages, and I've kept that going. But right early on, my parents, who were wonderful in encouraging me to think about the big questions, so I wanted to know where mathematics fitted in science, and where science fitted into the big picture. And I was a teenager at the time when I discovered that it was quite clear that science didn't give us a full picture. It can't explain everything. And I started voraciously reading and thinking and studying, and particularly C.S. Lewis, who I lived to hear in 1962 in his last lectures, was a tremendous help to me in showing how logical Christianity was, just as logical as the mathematics that I loved. For some people, um, studying mathematics is worse than eating broccoli. And yet you <laughs> say that you love to study math. What, what is it about mathematics that's interesting? Well, I love broccoli too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think the fascination is you here have a very highly compressed language. And we discover that in some mysterious almost way that it tells us something about the universe. We can reduce some of the things going on out there in the universe to mathematics. And we think of Isaac Newton and his gravitational equation or Kepler's laws or the Clark Maxwell's laws of electromagnetism. And that always fascinated me that in a few symbols you could capture something which when you unfolded it 
gave you, for instance, if you take Newton's equation, gravitation equation, you can very rapidly see that the planets move in ellipses around the sun as focus. And that kind of thing absolutely riveted me. Of course, it all depends, I think, at school time of having a really inspirational teacher, which I was very fortunate to have. So I love mathematics. But you see, the, the fascinating thing is Einstein once said, the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. And he put his finger in something very important. And that's one of the reasons I'm a Christian, because mathematics works. And atheism gives me no explanation of why mathematics works. But the great scientists, Newton I've named, Kepler, Galileo, Clark Maxwell, Faraday, all of them were believers in God. And I think the best way to sum that up is in the words of C.S. Lewis. He once said, men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in the lawgiver. So there's an intimate connection with the biblical worldview and the rise of modern science. I often say to people, Kurt, that I'm not remotely ashamed of being a scientist and a believer in God because arguably Christianity gave me my subject. I, I love that. And, I, and you mentioned earlier that your parents encouraged you to uh, read on a wide variety of subjects and from a, a variety of authors, not just a Christian worldview, but others as well. Uh, do you recommend that for parents today? Because there's certainly things that they could be reading that would undermine a biblical worldview. We need, as parents, particularly Christian parents, to prepare our children for going out into college and university. And I know the statistics in some countries are horrifying, that over 70% of, of kids who profess Christianity at school, within two or three years of university, they've lost it. And I think one of the main reasons for that is that the parents are not spending time answering their questions, or if they can't answer them, which is often the case, feeding them with really good information, which is available today in a measure that it wasn't available when I was younger, and helping them to think through these worldview issues. You cannot live in a pluralistic, complex, multicultural world and stand as a Christian without facing questions, and you need to be ready to answer them and defend the Christian gospel. And that's what I try to spend most of my life doing. You mentioned that you had a chance to actually sit in some of the classrooms or the lectures, hear lectures from C.S. Lewis. What a privilege that must have been. How did uh, your sitting at his feet influence the career path that you've taken? Well, I went to the last of his lectures in 62 in Cambridge, not knowing that he was seriously ill. He died the following year, uh, as you will recall. But he'd begun to influence me long before I reached Cambridge in, in 62, because my father gave me a copy of Mere Christianity. And it was like standing under a fire hose of logical thinking, and it just opened my mind and I devoured every word. And what was most important for me was, I have no idea what it's like to be an adult and not a believer in God. And I needed someone to guide me into what that was like. And so C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist until 
middle life until his 30s, certainly, uh, provided that guide and helped me to understand the nuts and bolts of atheism. And I didn't know that one day I would confront uh, the leading atheists of the day, like uh, Richard Dawkins and, and so on. And all of that was enormously helpful because what got really into my heart at an early stage was that Christianity was true. I'd seen it lived, really lived in the lives of my parents, and they loved me enough not to force it down my throat, and they encouraged me to think so that I was persuaded inwardly of the truth of Christianity. So when I left Ireland, with all its religion and its factions and everything else and bigotry, and got to Cambridge, I didn't lose my faith in God, as many of my contemporaries did, because they had never imbibed it. They'd never believed it for themselves in an individual way. So parents were very important. Lewis was important. And other people were important in helping me to think about scripture as hard as I do about my maths. As a mathematician, John, when you look at the universe, what are some of the evidences that point you to believe that it was created by God? Well, the very first thing it might surprise some people. It's the very fact that we can do science with mathematics. In other words, we discovered that this is what I call a word-based universe. It's describable in a language. And that resonates wonderfully with two things, two central statements in the biblical text. Firstly, the, the first words of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. And then a bit later on, all things came to be through the Word. And there is John explaining how the universe came to exist. It is Word-based. It was spoken by God, who is the Word. And in the simpler language of Genesis, but no less profound, you have the constant repetition, and God said, and God said. So, one of the things that points me towards God is the semiotic nature of mathematics. It describes the universe in language. And another thing that fits beautifully in with that was discovered relatively recently, and that is the fact that the human genome is the longest word, contains the longest word we've ever discovered, 3.4 billion chemical letters all arranged in a row. And when Francis Collins stood beside the President of the United States and announced that they decoded it, they said, this is the language of God. And there in our genetics, in every one of the 10 trillion cells in our bodies, is a lengthy word. And that, to my mind, speaks directly of an intelligent input from a speaking God. It's a word-based universe. So that's where I would start. And then I would pick up probably from physics the fact that's recognized by virtually all physicists and cosmologists that this universe is incredibly fine-tuned to have carbon-based life on it. The basic constants of nature are so precise, have to be so precise, otherwise the universe wouldn't exist. And again, that demands explanation. Every scientist sees that it demands an explanation. But people like the late Stephen Hawking, who was a genius and was in Cambridge around the same time as I was there, they reject, of course, the God explanation. But 
they come to believe in a universe that created itself from nothing, which to my mind is logically absurd apart from anything else. John, uh, I'm so glad you're not recommending that people stay away from the tough questions, but you are inviting them into those difficult questions and to explore those things. And, and that's what I want for my children. And, and I love that, that you see studying math almost as a way, a form of worshiping God. I, explain what you mean by that. Uh, we think of singing as worship or reading the scriptures, but studying mathematics? In, in what way does that send us into worship? Well, not quite in the same way. I think if we're singing really good music, they're actually verbalizing things about God. And that is very important because as I understand worship in its narrow sense at least, it is a response to God speaking. And it's our articulating what we think about God and believe about him. Just to give you a crude analogy, if you want to get people to laugh, you have to tell them a joke. You don't discuss the mechanics of laughter. And if you want to get people to worship, you tell them about God. You don't discuss emotion or anything like that. And therefore, it seems to me the primary source of worship is God speaking to us through his word. But mathematics and the study of nature in general, the heavens declare the glory of God, not only visually, but mathematically. And there's, a, there's an absolute beauty in some of the mathematics that, that we study. And it certainly fits perfectly in with the idea that whatever we do, whether it's mathematics or expounding scripture, both of which I like doing, we do all to the glory of God. It's not restricted to what happens inside a church building. John, your insights are fascinating. Uh, I, I love our conversation. And when we come back, we're going to discuss God and science. Are the two compatible or at odds with one another? Let's talk more about that after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're back with John Lennox after exploring how God can be found in mathematics. Now we're going to talk about God and science. John, uh, I heard that you wrote a little book and it's being read around the world called Can Science Explain Everything? Why is everyone talking about this book so much? It addresses a feeling that's very widespread, that science has been so successful. Look at the technology it has produced. Surely in the end, it will answer everything and push religion right out to the side, and especially any ideas of God. And I want to combat that. And I want to say that science is powerful. I love it, but it's limited. And it's easy to see that it's limited. There's a very brilliant Nobel Prize winner called Sir Peter Medawar, and he once said it's so easy to see that science is limited because it cannot even answer the questions of a child. 
Where do I come from? Where am I going? And what is the meaning of life? And he hit on something very important there. The late Lord Sachs, who was the chief rabbi in the United Kingdom and, and Commonwealth, wrote a book once. He was a brilliant philosopher. And he said something roughly like this. Science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts them together to see what they mean. And the point is that science can answer many questions, but it cannot answer the questions of meaning. We often put it this way, that science answers mainly the how questions and the why questions of function. Why is that bit there? But it cannot deal with the why questions of purpose. And I often illustrate this by telling a story about a fictitious Aunt Matilda who's baked a beautiful cake, and there it is in front of us. And she presents it to an assembly of all the Nobel Prize winners and asks them to analyze the cake. So you get a brilliant chemical analysis, you get an analysis in terms of biology and physics in terms of quarks and electrons and everything else. And they give you a huge and perfect analysis. And when they've finished, she says, now, just before you go, please tell me why the cake was made. And she begins to grin. And <laughs> the physicist, well, he could tell what it's made of, but he can't tell why she made the cake. And nor can the chemist and nor can anybody else, not even the mathematicians who don't get Nobel Prizes. None of them can tell her why. Only she can if she reveals it to them. Now, this is a very simple analogy, but it's hugely important because it's the same with the universe. We can examine what it's made of and get brilliant scientific theories, but to understand why it was made and why we were made, God who created it will have to reveal it to us. Now, here's the important thing. When Aunt Matilda reveals it to us, we don't shut our reason off. We use our reason to understand her revelation. And just as we use our reason to understand science, how it works, we use our reason to understand her explanation of why she made it. And it's exactly the same because so many people think that faith is a religious word. It means believing where there's no evidence. That's nonsense. Faith is an ordinary word. It means trust. And it's as important in science as it is in any other field. And that's why I say that we need to distinguish between these two explanations. Why are people, do you think, so committed in the academic fields to not believing in God? And they've done a fantastic job of making us think that we're the ones who believe fantastical things. But really, it's, it's the ones who deny God who appear to me to be living in this fantasy world that out of nothing, everything comes. Sometimes I, when I'm talking to scientists, I'll say, what do you do science with? And they will talk about some expensive equipment. And I point to my head and I, I say, this, oh, they said, you mean your, and they're about to say mind when they know that it's not politically correct to believe in the mind. So they say your brain, you do science for your brain. I say, okay, I believe the brain and the mind are separate, but that's another discussion. You do science with your brain. Give me the short history of the brain. And they come up with something like this. Well, the brain is the end product 
of a mindless, unguided process. And I look at them and smile and I say, and you trust it? I said, tell me honestly, if you knew that the computer that you use every day for doing your science was the end product of a mindless, unguided process, would you trust it? Now, here's the interesting thing. I have always got the answer, no. And I say to them, you have a problem, don't you? Because you are giving me an explanation of your brain mind that you wouldn't accept in any other area. Atheism gives you no ground for trusting the rationality you need to do science. So what atheism does is not only shoot you in the foot, and that's painful, it shoots you in the head, and that's fatal. You're speaking in ways that remind me of C.S. Lewis and making similar types <laughs> of arguments, and it's, uh, it's so refreshing to hear this. Um, do you address in your book uh, the objection that somebody might make, uh, well, your Matilda argument sounds great and your teapot argument sounds great, because uh, she wanted to make the cake. There is a purpose, someone wanted a cup of tea. But uh, you cannot assume that the universe was made for a reason. We can pull it apart, we can describe how it works, but doesn't it just take faith to believe that there's actually a purpose and a meaning behind it all? What say there is no purpose or meaning? Well, of course it does. You can assume that there's no purpose or meaning, but then that's the stop. Uh, and it's very interesting for a scientist to take that view because all the time they spend, what's that for? What's the point of that? What's the purpose of this? And uh, my friend Paul Davis, who is an Arizona State University, not a theist, he says it's very curious when science goes down and down and down and then say, well, the whole thing, you don't inquire. There's no purpose behind it all. The thing is, I'm looking for explanations that make sense, and I prefer them over explanations that make no sense. Now, here we are as people who can create our own purposes. And that's a very interesting thing. C.S. Lewis, again, uh, made the point. Wouldn't it be very strange, he said, if we found ourselves in a world where we got thirsty and there was no such thing as water? And you see, it's like that. Our minds long for meaning and purpose. It's one of the most important things. Science doesn't give us those things, except in a limited extent, that a person can say, my purpose in life is to solve this problem. But an ultimate purpose, where is it all heading and so on? That's, that is, is a crucial question. And in the end, we've, we can assume that it's all absurd, but that's the end of the story. And what if we're wrong? And so I would much prefer to say, if you assume it's all observed, that is your faith. There are no people, and this is hugely important, there are no people today who are not people of faith. Every scientist is a person of faith. And when anybody uses the word faith when talking to me, I say, faith in what? What is your faith in? It's in something. It may be in yourself. It may be in your science, it may be in atheism, or it may be in God. What is the evidence that backs up your trust? Because that's what faith is. It's not believing where there's no evidence. It's committing yourself where there is evidence. Otherwise, you're just a bit crazy. John, I love what you're saying, and it, it, it reminds me, um, as a young Christian, when I was wrestling with these issues, I wanted to have so much evidence 
I wanted all the, 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 the God-believing scientists to create such an airtight case that faith would not be required in order to oh. know God, to love God, and, and to live with him forever. And yet the scriptures say that faith is, is, it's impossible to please God without faith. Faith is a gift that comes to us from God. And, and somehow God has, has stacked the deck in such a way that faith cannot be removed from the equation. Why do you think that is? Well, because it can't be removed from any equation. I can't prove to you mathematically or scientifically that my wife, to whom I've been married for 52 years, loves me. But I believe there's enough evidence of that for me to stake my life on it. Uh, we get a bit mystified here. And we don't realize that trust, uh, faith is something that abides, it goes all the way through. And faith in God is not simply faith in a set of propositions, like in science. Faith in science is believing certain things, equations and the rationality of the universe. But when we're talking about God, we're talking about faith and trust in a person. And of course, we would be very unwise these days, particularly to trust people without there being evidence. We need evidence for trust. But evidence is the thing that leads to trust. It doesn't replace it. If I want to get a mortgage from a bank, I go into the bank manager and he says, "What? on what basis should I trust you? Well, I've got this collateral, I've got this house. Well, that doesn't displace trust. It gives him a reason for trust. That's a very different matter. Mm. So we'll never do away with trust, even in ordinary human relationships. And what I spend a lot of time doing, because the new atheists have done a marvelous job in getting people to think that atheists have no faith, they have rationality and so on, and that's sheer nonsense. Richard Dawkins says in one of his books, Atheists Have No Faith, and then he spends about 400 pages telling us what he believes. I mean, that's just <laughs> is sheer nonsense. Christian Christopher Hitchens was even worse. He once said, our beliefs are not a belief, our faith's not a faith. Because what they get confused with is the distinction between faith in a genuine self, that is trust in something based on evidence, and blind faith, which is trust where there's no evidence. Huge difference. John, thank you for joining us today on Takeaways and sharing how the fields of science and math are additional ways that we can find God and appreciate the magnificent universe that he created. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show. 